Welcome to the Sky Society Podcast, the place where dream careers come true. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Sky Society, Natalie Peters. Prepare for smiles, tears, surprises, and epic takeaways. This podcast is for the ambitious woman who wants it all and wants it real. We're diving deep with relatable and dreamy guests who are showing you what actually matters when it comes to starting and accelerating your career so you can make your dream job your real job. Let's make it happen. Welcome back to another episode of the Sky Society podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. Today, I am interviewing Marcy Morricone. She is the author of My Boss is a Bitch, where she is changing the paradigm of female leadership. Marcy has over 20 years of experience in senior level marketing roles at companies like Kellogg's, Champion, Gap, and Area International, and has so much incredible wisdom to share with you today. So welcome, Marcy. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. And hello to all of your listeners. I love your podcast. I love what you're doing with Sky Society. And I'm really excited to talk to everyone today. I'm super excited as well. Marcy and I have chatted quite a bit before this episode. So this I'm super excited to actually dive fully into her career because she's done so much. And then also specifically at the end, we may make this one a part two of going into the details of her book that really dives into a lot of the challenges that women face in the workplace and how you can step up and be more of a leader. So much good stuff to dive into today. But before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? I can. So I am what I define a hybrid marketer. So what that means is I don't really fit into one specific, you know, square peg hole, whatever that expression is. I am someone who has always worn different hats in my career in the same role, in the same job at the same time. So, you know, marketing is a very broad term, right? It means a lot of things, especially these days in the digital world. But what I am, I'm a hybrid between a brand strategist, a brand builder, and a creative director. So while I'm not trained as a graphic designer, I didn't go to art school. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a classic creative director that came up through a different, you know, more creative route. I have always worked extremely closely and extremely well with creative folks. And so as I went through my career, I got closer and closer to the creative process my, in my last role, I was the creative director, but most of my experience has been running brands and from, you know, running the brand from the brand perspective. I so think that term you, you called yourself there of a hybrid marketer is very unique. I am curious. Do you think that a lot of other marketers out there identify as that, as just like not being in a single niche, or do you think that's something that's a little bit more unique to you in your own history? You know, that is such a great question because I think what happens when you're starting out in your career, it is important to focus on one thing and it is important to go really deep. So for example, I started on the agency side and in those days we were called account executives or bag carriers. And we were the the people who interfaced with the client and we would take direction from the client. And then we would come back to the agency and we would translate that for the creative team so they could continue to develop the work. So you're sort of the go, go between business person. 
And that's important. And, and, and it is important, like if you're a media planner to dive into media planning, but what happens, I think, when you continue in your career is obviously you learn new skills, you learn new skills, you interact with more people. And as your role becomes bigger in your company or the agency, or if you're an entrepreneur, wherever you work, and so you start wearing different hats. And so as you start wearing different hats as a marketer, one of the big areas that's really important for anyone in marketing is to understand the creative process and to be able to work with creatives and to have creative ideas and be able to sit at the table with creatives. And so that's kind of how the, the hybrid idea came to me was when I realized that I could split myself in half. I could go to a board meeting. I could talk to very senior business people, the COO. I could look at data from market research and understand how to interpret that and how to create consumer insights and a roadmap for the brand. But then I could also work with our agency partners or with my creative team to have hardcore creative strategic conversations. And so as you go up in your career, I think it's easy to become a hybrid marketer. So so that there's a it's really a two-part answer to your question, right? So in the beginning of your career, you're more focused on a, on a single-minded path that you want to be on. But, but as you excel and as you grow, I do think there are a lot of hybrid people out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Where you get to lean into more than one strength and, and get to play both parts, which I'm excited to dive into when we get on to later on in your career. Mm -hmm. I want to start with you back at the beginning, because what's really unique about Marcy is that she has a very international marketing background. So if any of you have ever dreamt of going to school in Italy. She did that. So can you tell me a little bit about when you originally started? I know you mentioned that you were somewhat of a rule breaker and you knew you wanted to go into fashion, but you also didn't quite want to study that. So can you talk to me about this, this early stage in your career and your decision to go to Italy? Thank you. Yeah, that's a, a nice question. So, you know, things are really different today. So my career path and the choices that I made aren't necessarily the choices that you all should be making because we live in a different world. And it was a little bit easier back then to do something completely different in college and then do something completely different in your career. So it's a little bit harder today. I was, I studied classical voice in high school and college. And, and my voice teacher said to me, if you really want to sing, you need to learn Italian. So I said, okay. So I started to learn Italian and did my senior year of high school in Italy and just said, forget classical voice. I love Italian. I love everything Italian. I love the culture. I love the fashion and I love the visual stimulation in Italy. And I think that what attracted me so much to the country and the culture is I'm a visual learner and I do have this creative side. And as a friend once said to me, Italy is like one great big department store. So it doesn't matter if you're in a town with 10 people or 10,000 people or millions of people, the stores are fabulous. And you walk down the street and you look at how people are dressed and you look at the store windows and it's so stimulating and you get all these great ideas. So I just fell in love with Italy uh, senior year in high school. And then I came back and I did two years of university in the UC system. And then they had this wonderful, and they still have it, a junior year abroad program. And so I went to Padova, which is right outside of Venice. And I was just supposed to stay there for a year. And I decided to major in Italian literature because I really wanted to just speak Italian. And really that's all I did was 
speak Italian and shop and look around and just have this fantastic kind of creative stimulation and go to museums and learn all about art and all of that kind of stuff. Well, then what happened was, as I met uh, my junior year, I met the the man who I ended up marrying. And so I stayed a second year and I actually, my school let me graduate from there. So I did two years of university there. And then when I came back, I was importing sweaters. I just, again, I was, didn't really follow any rules. <laughs> I didn't major in business. I didn't major in fashion, but at that time you could actually go to people were selling hand knit sweaters out of their garages in this certain town in Italy that's known for knitwear. It's called Carpi. So we drove around, we bought sweaters. I came back and I just got in my car and I started selling them to all the little boutiques throughout California. And that was my introduction into the clothing business (laughs) and they sold and people bought them and they loved them. But then I realized that if I was really going to be serious and make money, I needed a real job. So I got a job as a sales rep for a major clothing company out of New York. And I was the California rep and I had three really incredible lines. And I just got in my little car, my little Volkswagen. And I was the youngest rep in the company and the only rep in the company the year, the first year that I started that I made my quota which is really funny when I think back on it now, because I could sell. And so I just learned that I could sell. And, you know, as marketers, we sell ideas and that's what we do, right? We sell ideas, we sell stuff. So, so I just transitioned from learning Italian, being in Italy to getting a job as a sales rep. And then after that, I got kind of bored with it. And again, I knew I wanted to do something really business related and I was very ambitious and I was very, very driven. And so from there, I was able to transition to the agency world. And I was lucky because I lived in San Francisco. And at the time, Levi's was just having, you know, just the time of its life. Levi's was huge and it had incredible creative coming out of the agency called Foot Cone and Belding. And I was really, really fortunate that they hired me into their training program. So I was a assistant account executive there, but for two years, it was like going to business school and they ran you through this program and they just taught me so much about strategy and media and presentation skills. And that was a life-changing experience. So that's how I, I came back. And then I started on the agency side. What an incredible journey that you went through doing all of that. And I love that little piece of your story about how you even brought back the sweatshirts and you started selling that. And again, not doing things necessarily the, you know, quote unquote, normal way that they, you know, we think that they should be done. I want to talk briefly about this sales experience that you have, because I love that you tied that back into marketing. And there are so many women that I know that are that I have this sales background and they feel like it makes them harder to, it's harder for them to transition into marketing, even though that's where they want to be. Can you speak to how you've leveraged that skill throughout your career, how you leverage that to help get this first role at such an awesome marketing agency? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening, who, if, if you have that fear or that doubt, get over it get over it. Because if you watch any Ted talk, if you watch any CEO of any company or, you know, everything you love, they're selling. That's what, that's what, that's what you do as a marketer. And 
whether it's a product, an idea, or a new process in an, in an agency or in a company, or you're going to your boss and you have an idea, or you're asking for a promotion, in all of those areas, sales skills are absolutely imperative. Sales skills and one other thing, take a theater class. There's a lot of acting, right? There is. There's voice modulation. There's how you hold your body. There are things that you can learn in an acting class. And if you combine that with your ability to sell and talk to people and connect with people and make those human connections and that eye contact and the follow-up and the smile and all those things that go in to being a good salesperson, you absolutely can leverage those skills as a marketer. Yeah, I'm absolutely agree. Even me, I had my little stint in sales and and I hated it. I mean, I hated my experience in sales, but I learned so much from it and I got so much confidence in myself and I got to build a skill that I use every day and that I use all the time because you, I mean, you have to sell yourself. You have to sell your ideas. You know, you're selling lots of different things when you go throughout your career. So I love it when I see girls with sales backgrounds. So I'm glad you reaffirmed that as well. Yeah, the other thing I just want to, the other thing that I just want to say about sales is if you take a sales job right out of college, it also helps you to know what products you love and what categories that you want to work in. So, you know, let's say you're selling software or let's say you're working in a retail store or let's say, you know, you're selling coffee or you're selling a service. It really does help you figure out what you want to do. So if you're not quite sure what sector you want to work in, I think having a sales job of any sort can help you figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to look at it as well. Your, so I want to go back to your, your time here at an agency life. I think you spent about five to seven years of your career doing, you know, starting with these training programs, working at agencies, learning all about creative strategy and brand strategy. And you learned a ton during this time. Can you talk about then, I think you started to switch over to client side and going back and forth there. So can you talk about that transition too? Yeah. And I actually... I've, I've gone back and forth um, between agency and client. There does get to be a point in your career where you do have to make a decision. And I think in my early thirties, I definitively decided that I wanted to be a client, but if you are listening and you're wondering why you like both, it's sometimes it's hard to decide if you want to be on the agency side versus the client side, because they offer different things. And that's a very, very personal decision. So when I started in the agency business, it was very different than it is today. Remember, there was no internet. I'm, you know, probably old enough to be a lot of your mothers and there was no internet. There were no computers. I remember when we got our first ginormous computer in the office and there was only one person that was allowed to type on it. So things are different. They're very, very different from a tech standpoint. What isn't different is consumer behavior and the way that people make connections with brands. So if you, yeah, so if you love that, the agency is, is still a totally viable, wonderful place to be. But I, after working at Footcone for a couple of years on Levi's, I, this was during what we called the phone wars and way pre-cell phone, but I had an opportunity that was offered to me to work at J. Walter Thompson on a phone, you know, huge, huge phone client. And so I, I switched to that and that was a career changer, which I will explain for me. 
So J. Walter Thompson was known for being also a great training ground, but also very, very strategic. A little bit old school, but very strategic. So I went over to JWT, which is what people call it today, and learned a lot about brand strategy. And while I was doing this, my husband was in graduate school and he he's a, was Italian. And so we agreed that we were going to go back and live in Italy for a year. So I asked my boss, this is about, don't ever be afraid to ask a question. I asked my boss, she ran, which wasn't my direct boss, but she ran the agency. And I went in there one day and I said, Hey, I have got vacation coming up. I really would like to interview at our office in Milan. It's a dream of mine. You know, I really, really want to do it. Can you help me? And she didn't know anyone there. And she picked up the phone and she called the office. She found out who the general manager was. He happened to be American. They had a conversation and she set up an interview for me. That is incredible. And you never would have got that if, I mean, and seeming that the same question to ask also, if you think about that, but look at where it got you. So yeah, so I took them. She made a call and then I decided to get some other interviews with some companies that were small and up and coming at the time, but we, they were Italian brands. One was Benetton, which, you know, then became a worldwide brand. The other one was Timberland, which people probably don't know this, but Timberland started in Italy and it was owned by an Italian family and they made beautiful, beautiful boots and sweaters. And of course I loved clothes. So, so I went with a frequent flyer ticket. On my little two week vacation in my mid twenties to Italy. And I came back with two job offers. So the job offer that I got at JWT was to work on this really, really unknown cereal brand in Italy at the time. And it was called Kellogg's. <laughs> so Kellogg's was trying to get into Italy. They had just made huge inroads in France and they were forming an international team of bicultural people that understood both American and Italian culture. And that was a life-changing job. I went into the office. I interviewed with uh, two men, one, one who I'm still really close friends with. And they offered me the job on the spot because I was bilingual and I just kind of, I was also not super senior. So also not having a ton of experience can also be a good thing for certain jobs because they needed someone who was just at my level. I, I knew just enough that I could go to meetings. I could take notes. I could write the conference reports and, and then grow from there. And so that job I took, moved to Italy with my little suitcase. And then my husband met me later as he was finishing his graduate program at Berkeley. And we thought we were going to stay a year or two and we ended up staying 10. So when I was working on Kellogg's and granite, keep in mind that Italian moms thought cereal was dog food. We had to convince them that it was a healthy breakfast that tasted good. Yes, I would, if we can dive into your experience with that a little bit, because I think it's so, so unique. And, and especially this, you, I feel like part of your story too, is having this multicultural and, and, you know, working in the US and working in Italy, and then going and bringing in this new product where they literally thought it was cereal. So I'd love to hear if you can share anything kind of about what your process was like educating an entire consumer base on cereal. Another great question. So it's actually really simple. And this is, 
this is kind of marketing 101. And what we did is what we as marketers do all the time, which is you have to understand what the barrier to trial is. So we understood that the barrier to trial was that moms thought it didn't taste good. They, they weren't sure it was healthy, but they really didn't think it tasted good. So what we did was we figured out a strategy where we could show them or tell them with a tagline that it was good for you and it, and it tasted good. So that was the first thing. The next thing that the company did was they did invest a lot in getting shelf space in grocery stores. So, right. So not everything is marketing in, in, in the, in terms of like advertising, right. People needed to be able to walk into the grocery store and find the product on the shelf. So that was, you know, an area of the business that I had nothing to do with, but that was happening at the same time that we were developing these communication messaging strategies. The other thing that we did, and this is also what we do now as marketers, is you really look at what are the deep, deep consumer insights and emotional connections that people make. So in Italy, you know, you know that food is so, so important and so are children. And these are family products. And so at the time, the advertising that was on television, it was very stylized. It looked really fake. It looked, you know, like these people with, you know, the kind of Brady Bunch, perfect lives very fake. And so what we did is for the very first time we used real kids. So we didn't cast from a casting agency. We just found really, really cute kids. And we told them what we wanted them to say, but obviously they said it their own way. And so we just filmed kids eating cereal, talking about it. And they were just really, really cute. And people connected with it and they responded to it. And so you can take that process and you can put that on any product. It's timeless, ageless, you know, countryless. You can do that anywhere. You figure out why people aren't buying your product. You figure out what you think it is that's special and different that they might connect with. And then you message to that. So that's all, that's what we did. And it worked like gangbusters. It reminds me of, have you heard of the five whys? Or how it's basically essentially like when you are trying to solve a problem, it's like ask why five times to get to like the true root of it. And when you're talking, walking me through your steps here, it was like, okay, so why do they think it's disgusting? You know, why do they not want, why are they not purchasing it? Why don't they like it? And you got down to the root of the kid, right? It has to be about the kid. And then you brought the kids in to eat the cereal and be really authentic in the way that they talked about it, which I love. And I can only imagine just how, how fun that also was working on it. Was the success from your marketing immediate? Did it take a long time or what was the results from that campaign? The results were pretty fast because Kellogg's made a large media investment. And so the way in CPG, which is consumer packaged goods, one of the ways that people, companies measure success is by either like increasing a portion or increasing frequency or in, or buying like a second offering. So I don't know, Kellogg's had about 10 different products then, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to get people to put more cereal in their bowl Mm -hmm. and to, and to add a second product to their shelf. So that's how we measured it. And there was, there's very, very scientific ways to measure that. 
And that's a very fast way to grow your business, right? So if you are filling your cereal bowl halfway and then you get them to fill it three quarters, you've already increased your business tremendously. So, so that, so we were able to measure it quickly. You know, there's one other example that I did want to bring up if, if, yes, if I may, I because then that could, could also kind of inform people about how simple it is really what we do in making these connections. After I left Kellogg's and I was still in Italy, I, I led the marketing team for champion, which is the, you know, the sweatshirt champion USA sweatshirt company. And they also had gone into Italy and wanted people to both understand this American heritage that the brand had, but we also had to connect it with the culture and the way that Italians work out, the way they dress, the way that they interact with a sweatshirt is very, very different than an American. It is a completely different experience. And so to your question a, a minute ago, you know, we did the same thing. We figured out what it was that Italians liked about sweatshirts, how they wanted to dress more casually, what those items were. And then we designed products that were the most gorgeous sweatshirts you've ever seen. Beautiful cottons, beautiful colors. We changed the logo. We made it big. So even now in the States, you, you see a lot of champion products where the logo is really big across the chest that started in Italy. The designer was amazing. So we used we used a fashion technique, if you will, to make a better sweatshirt, but then all of the advertising really focused on the sweat and the, just the, the, the real kind of American sweat workout. And we used American athletes, um, not athletes, not professional athletes, but we used, you know, athletic people. And, and so it's just that simple, right? We just connected what Italians love. We connected what Americans are really good at and what they're known for and the brand sword. I feel like you're downplaying your skill and talent in this because I do think, sure, on the basic level, it is simple, but there are a million different little decisions that you have to make along the process. So I'm curious to hear, what do you, you think is your superpower in these processes. You're working with these brands and you're helping them, you know, try to grow their consumer base at a very large scale. So where do you, I mean, there's lots of different steps in this process, but mm -hmm. what do you feel like is your superpower in all of it? So my superpower is that I'm able to translate. I call myself the translator. Sometimes I'm able to translate the consumer need into a creative brief or into a creative process and work closely with a creative team that then comes up with an idea for something. So in the example of champion, the way I did that was coming up with this idea of the sweatshirt. And so we had to figure out how do you communicate in a nanosecond, a, the, a sweatshirt and that the sweatshirt and the sweat is the core of the brand. And so what we thought of was all of the background on the print ads and, and the digital ads, it you could actually, we shot a piece of fabric and you could see immediately that it was a sweatshirt, the fabric. And then we put the photos and the copy right on, on top of a sweatshirt. And so my superpower is that I can put all of these things together in my brain 
while working with creatives and then also working like managing upward to sell the ideas to the management team. And things are always really messy in the beginning. That's true. To your point, it, it, I always say it has to get really, really messy before it can get really, really clear and simple. So you get really messy, but then it becomes really clear and simple what you have to do. So, so my superpower is just being able to, to do that. I'm also want if you could speak a little bit more to that. So just if someone, or what do you think is the biggest mistake people make when working with creatives? If you haven't worked with creatives before, it is, I think, very different. I have in the past as well, although I wouldn't say I'm as skilled as you are. But what do you think is the biggest mistake people make when they are working with creatives that kind of hinders this process? So great question. I think it's very, very common for people to think that a quote unquote creative person can solve a business issue without a strategy. So the best creative comes out of a really, really good strategy. So the first mistake that people make working with creatives is thinking that they can solve the problem. So no one person can solve the problem. It needs to be a group effort. It needs to be collective thinking. It needs to be collaboration. And that's really, really important. And so if you can collaborate and come in really understanding the consumer, the consumer insights, meaning what they love, what they don't love, what the issues are from a business perspective, it's going to be a lot easier to then come up with a creative strategy, right? So there's a business strategy and there's a creative strategy and they're not the same things. They're interlinked, but the creatives aren't going to solve it for you. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it comes from, from, so you, you giving them or helping them with the direction. Is that essentially the piece that you're saying or, or being more clear or. It's, well, it's not so much. So you, you, you need to help the creative team understand the context. They need to understand the market. They need to understand the competitors. They need to understand what's in the client's head, what the, and what the barriers are. And so if you come in with to a creative team and you don't really know your business and you don't really understand what's going on in the market, it's really hard to have a strategy. So I'll give you an example. When I was at Ariat, we launched a work brand. And what that work brand was, it was it was to compete with Carhartt and with the the the, the very, very well-known work brands of, of the world, right? Well, people know Ariat as an equestrian brand. They know it as the largest maker of cowboy boots and equestrian boots. They don't think of it as the the clothing I'm going to buy when I when I'm an electrician or a plumber or you know a worker, right? So when we looked at what the competitors were doing, they were all saying the right things and touting the right technical aspects of the product. But the most people's ads, they felt very polished and they felt a little pristine, a little pretty and a little overworked, like not so authentic, not gritty. And so basically we went in and made really gritty, natural advertising again, using real people, not models, just people who actually were contractors and who, who were in the trades. And we just, we just did it in a very natural kind of way. And so that resonated with people because 
it aligned with what the product's purpose was. Yeah. Okay. That is more clear now. And I can see that this is kind of where you thrive or, or this is kind of where you, you are very talented as you explain these examples, because I don't think that's very easy for everyone to notice. And then also for you to be able to communicate that with the creative team so they can accurately execute on that information or on those insights. My other piece that I want to ask you on that is you also mentioned that you're really good about taking these ideas that you work on with the creative team and then selling them or, you know, getting buy-in from leadership and from management. Can you also share maybe the biggest mistakes you see people make there or your advice on how to be better at getting your ideas or getting buy-in from leadership on your ideas? Right. So that's not always easy. It's not for the faint of heart. Sometimes those meetings go really well, and sometimes they're a disaster. So my first piece of advice is never give up. If you really, really believe in your gut that there's a strategy there or an idea there that you think is going to move the business, and if someone says no to you, figure out a way to either rework the idea or involve more people or do some consumer research or or evolve your idea more and really, really understand what it is about that idea that scares them or that they don't like. Because usually when a senior person says no to something, they either just really don't think it's going to work. They just don't think it's going to work or there's something about it that they're afraid of. A lot of senior, you know, we think that because they're senior, they're never afraid of things. Well, of course, if you run a big business and you run a campaign and it doesn't work, that reflects on you. That's not so good, right? So, so that's one thing. The second thing is I I can't emphasize enough how important it is to learn how to write a very crisp and clear presentation. So, you know, I got training on how to write a good PowerPoint slide about 20 years ago. Actually, I think while I was at the Gap and I had a really smart boss and she used to make me rewrite my slides over and over again. And and I learned so much from that. And so when you're presenting an idea to a senior person, it's very important to know what their style is when they when they are presented to, because bosses have different things that they like. I had a boss once who never said anything until the very end. So you think she's not listening, but she listened to every single word. Her style was to take notes while you were talking. And then at the end, she would ask you all her questions. And they were very, very good questions. I've had other bosses who wouldn't let you get through the first slide without asking questions. And unfortunately, people who have worked for me would probably say I was more in that camp because I couldn't help myself because I, I needed to ask my question before we went on. And I don't think that's necessarily the best way to do it, but so you got to be prepared. So like people who worked on my team, they knew that that was my style. And so I think they, they were prepared and they persevered or they would say to me, hold on, I'm getting to that. Right. So it's okay. Also, when you're presenting to tell the person, I hear you, I'm get that's coming up on the next slide or, you know, give me a minute or we'll come back to that or let's parking lot. Like it's okay to manage them while you're presenting, but it's very, very important to know how to write a good presentation. 
What is, if someone is listening and they want to get better at writing their presentations, what can they do to start practicing? Well, one of the things that I learned at J. Walter Thompson, and a lot of you listening probably have learned this in, in school or in your current job. And they used to say, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them again, and then tell them what you just told them, right? Tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. So obviously it's not quite that simple or, and boring, but a good presentation sets up why you're there. What's the purpose? What are you going to talk about? And then you talk about it. And then in the end, you say, okay, based on this, here's our recommendations. This is what we want to do. And it's, I mean, it sounds, I think a lot, a lot easier than it actually is, but to write a good presentation or to give a good presentation, you really need to know what you want to leave the audience with. What's your ask? right? What do you want? What are you asking them to approve? What are you asking them to comment on? What do you want their role to be as the receiver of the information that you're giving? And I think a lot of times we're not clear. You know, sometimes we want our boss to make the decision for us or to tell us which route to go, but we don't really think that's what we want, but that's what we want. So our recommendation isn't clear. Or maybe we have two recommendations, or maybe there's two options, or maybe we know that we are proposing something that we know they are not going to like, or that's going to make them feel uncomfortable. Um, I was in a meeting a couple of years ago where a lot of people were involved in this presentation to the CEO, and we were recommending a tagline for the company. And we were concerned that they were not going to want to use this tagline. And we were right. We went through all the data. We went through all of our rationale and they looked at us and said, Nope, Mm -mm. no, I don't, I don't think so. And, you know, you could hear pin drops in the room and people backpedaled and didn't argue because it's the CEO speaking. And so that can happen. And when that happens in that moment, you've got to just pivot and figure out how you want to respond. And every situation is different. Yeah. Very interesting insights to hear there that I think are very helpful because I think those are skills that maybe if you're listening, you're not using now all the time, but I think are very, very important to focus on building. So if you find yourself growing in your career, having opportunities to present, take those very seriously and learn from those. And same whenever you get the opportunity to work with creative teams, it's just being mindful. And I think sometimes we're not aware how important building a skill like that is. But I think those two that you highlighted are very, very important to to focus on growing. Okay, Marcy. So we're at this point, I know you jumped around a little bit on some other roles that you've had, but if we're I think the last thing I mentioned, champion. So in Italy, you spent 10 years in Italy. The last question I want to ask you before we talk about your move back to San Francisco is your experience having this bicultural life of living in Italy for so long. I know when I studied abroad after six months, when I came back to the States, I was like so happy to be back in the States and to go to the grocery store and have the food that 
I missed that you can't really buy when you're in Europe. And I got homesick. I like, I definitely felt that. So I'm curious with your experience living in Italy for 10 years. I know you also had, when you went to champion, you had an 18 month old and a newborn. So you're also raising kids in a new country of what that challenge was like for you. And yeah, I just love to hear about that. So the grass is always greener, you know, these things sound so fabulous and romantic and all that. And really at the end of the day, it's, it's hard. It can be hard. So there were times where I loved it and there was times where I hated it and that's natural. And yes, I always loved coming home and going to the grocery store. It's such a different experience having a dryer, you know, and not having to iron my clothes. You know, I loved coming home and being able to wear, you know, Birkenstocks and nobody looked at me like I was a freak. So it's, it, you know, what you just described is something that I think most people feel when you live abroad, but then you also have these really incredible experiences. I have incredible friendships with people that I met that I worked with just recently. I reconnected with the very first person who was my very first admin in Italy. I haven't talked to her in, you know, 30 years and it, we just are best friends again. And, you know, so it's living abroad is, is incredible. And I think it's an experience that's really important, even for those hard moments where you just learn about yourself and, you know, you might sit and cry one night because you're homesick and then, you know, someone calls you and you feel better, you know, or you go to a a, a pub and, you know, you meet some new people and it's just, it's a very up and down emotional kind of thing. And, and, you know, whether you're there a year, two years, five years, 10 years, I I think that it just goes up and down and it just depends what's happening in, in your life. So I made the decision to come back because I wanted to raise my kids here. And I also felt like as a woman, I had pretty much hit the top of my career there and that I couldn't really go any farther. So I wanted to come back. Do you feel like there are fewer opportunities for women in leadership in Europe? So I can't speak for all of Europe. I think that I actually think it's really different in each country. I think in Italy, it's very, very hard to get past a certain level in big companies. The, The country is, the economy has been built on a lot of family run businesses. There's incredible entrepreneurship there. It's so inspiring. I I think Italians are just natural entrepreneurs and they work really, really hard. So if you're in a family that has a family run business and you, and, and you want to take it over, you know, that's, that's great. But if you're working in a corporation like a Kellogg's or, you know, there's a lot of really interesting food companies there's, or in fashion, it's, I think it's harder. I do think it's harder for women. I do. than it is here. I think it's interesting. You mentioned that as one of the motives for going back to the States, because I think sometimes even in companies here or just certain roles, there are going to be periods where you realize that there's not any more growth for you. And sometimes that can be really scary of admitting that of like, okay, I can stay here because I've been here and I like it. And I like people that I work with, but do I really have a future? Or do I have growth here? And I think like recognizing that and and you and me and and acting on that, I think is also a hard thing to do. And I've talked to some guests that have also found themselves in similar situations where you just realize like, okay, I've I've done what I can here. I've learned what I can, and and now I need to move on. But I always I love 
I always connect this to like relationships a lot when I'm thinking of your career moves, but it's very similar as if you're in a relationship and you realize like, okay, like there's nowhere that this can grow. So you made this switch and you came back to the States, you went to San Francisco and here you ended up working at some pretty big companies as well. Can you talk a little bit about your transition here? I know you said you dabbled back and forth on clients and then also agency. And I know you've worked at Kaiser and Gap and then your last role at Area International. Yeah. So when I came back, I had little babies. So I was looking for a job that would let me work at least for a year or so, you know, three days a week. So that was easier to do on the agency side. Agencies can be more flexible or they were at that time. Companies still really wanted you there, you know, five days a week. Remember there was no zoom, (laughs) there was no working from home. So I did that and I worked for fashion, you know, I worked for clothing brands while I was doing that. And then I went to gap and I, I was there for a while a short while actually. And then I went to Gymboree, which was fantastic. So Gymboree doesn't really exist anymore, but it was a really, really great kids brand with beautiful. I remember. Yeah. So the clothes aren't there anymore, but they have the play programs. And that was really, really nice for me to have a job like that. When I had little kids, it worked really well with my life. It's actually one of the best jobs I ever had. I just loved it. That business became became tough. You know, things just really changed when I was there. And at a, and then at a certain, so then from Gymboree, I think I went to Kaiser. So what happens also is in a, as a marketer, and I've been asked this question a lot, like, oh, why did you move around so much? It's because, you know, when you're in marketing, you take the marketing skills with you wherever you go, but it's, I believe it's really important to work in different categories. Now, some people aren't interested in that. And if you're not interested in that, that's great, but I'm a super curious person and I always want to do everything. And so I wanted to, I wanted to work in tech. I wanted to work in healthcare. I I, you know, I just wanted to learn and, and I wanted to continue to learn. And sometimes in the clothing business, it feels like you're doing just the same thing over and over again, because, you know, it's always, what's our seasonal strategy? What are the colors? I mean, it can be a little tiresome. Yes. It's denim, 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 denim. Okay. I'm tired of denim. So there was a point where I, I, I thought to myself, you know, I really love clothes and I really love shopping, but I don't want to talk about it and spend 60 hours a week talking about clothes. I want to do something else. So, so at Kaiser, I, I ran a a really big group of marketing communication folks. And that was, that was a really, really great learning experience because my team was, was big and I was doing things that I hadn't done, done before. And then, I don't know, I think I was there for four or five years And, you know, living in California, there's always that thing called tech where we think you can't escape it. (laughs) You can't escape it. And I think I really felt like I was never going to feel smart unless I worked for a tech company in some shape or form. And for me, you know, I've never really looked for jobs. They just kind of come into my life when I'm at that moment where I think, oh, I can't do anything else here. Like I'm kind of, I I think I've given what I can and then someone will call me and then something will happen. And so I got a phone call about this interesting 
job at Intel. So Intel, you know, is this ginormous tech company and they were spending a lot of money with all of their agencies. So they wanted to bring everything in-house because you can save a lot of money on commissions and so forth. So they built an organization called Agency Inside and it was basically an in-house, big in-house agency. So I ran the account management team for that. And that was my that was my first and last tech gig. <laughs> so from that, I learned that, you know what? I could do tech, but I don't want it. <laughs> that yeah. is your, I mean, this is all the different companies that you work for. And the fact that you have switched in different industries is I think really rare. I don't actually think most of the guests I have interviewed on the Scary Society podcast typically find their niche and they get really good at it and they move at different different companies and brands within that space. And so what you're doing here, I mean, healthcare, fashion, tech, like you're going all of the consumer product goods, like you're doing it all. What? And I know just from talking to you and knowing you, you seem like you like a challenge and you seem like you're a hard worker and that I'm assuming part of switching to different industries is fun because you get to figure a whole new space out which I can relate to also really loving. It's how I view entrepreneurship is just like a puzzle and it's fun and you have to figure it out. As you're moving to all of these different industries, what is, well, oh, okay, I'll ask this now, but I'll probably ask this again in a little bit, but I'm curious as to what you learned either was the same, like no matter where you went, like what were the things that just stayed true and that you got to continuously apply or that you learned would, would help you or be in your toolkit at, at each of these new places? Another really great question. So I think regardless of where you work or who you work for, a lot of the issues in every company are the same. There's always an unhappy group of people. There's always a really happy group of people. I'm simplifying it. So I, what I learned was the issues don't really change. They might look different, sound different and feel different, but the issues are pretty much the issues. The other thing that I learned was how much I love building internal teams and, and in-house agencies. So I basically would go into these companies and I would build up their creative strength and the, the brand strategy piece of the businesses. And so that those skills and that process is the same, right? Wherever you go. And, and so I think I was able to always like draw on the, the prior experience that I had. And I, you know, I remember so many times being in meetings thinking, oh, wow, it's the same issue. Oh, Wow wait, I've heard this before. And you start making these connections around how similar issues can be and challenges. And so that was, that was, I guess, comforting. I don't know. As I look back on my career, I wouldn't mind having had a few less jobs. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't recommend that people move around constantly, I think it's, you know, it's a very personal thing. Some people just really love tech and that's what they want to do. And, you know, that that's great. But yes, I, I had different categories that I was really excited about. And so the, the last role that I want to get into, and so your last role was area international. Is that correct? 
I want to talk about this one before we switch into what you're currently doing now, because I know you mentioned to me that this is where you felt like you did your best work. So this is where I'm imagining you took all these lessons from all these, these companies and this is where you feel like you did your best work. And I know you built their entire social media following. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about what made this work so special and why you felt like it was your best. So Ariat is a really unique company. It's a really wonderful company and there's really incredible people that run the company and they also make incredible products. They have, I don't know, four or five different areas that they're very, very deep in. And the reason why I was able to do what I would call my best work there was for a variety of reasons. First of all, the company as a whole was very open to wanting to be better, if you will, and more present in, in, as marketers, they did have a a small social media when I started, but you know, they hadn't really focused on it the way that companies are today. And they knew that they needed to, they knew what they didn't know. And they were very open to ideas to bring more people into the brand. Very, very open, very collaborative. And I had a boss who really let me do my thing. You know, she really was open and and we had a, a beautiful partnership. And so there was, and, and then the sales team really taught me uh, a lot about the business because I'm from California. A lot of the business is in the South. There's, you know, it's a, a big part of the business is for cowboys and people who work outdoors, farmers, ranchers, and then we launched these, these work, you know, these, these, these workwear lines and so forth. And so it, it, it's, it's a place where you never have to be afraid of making a mistake because the company culture treats making a mistake as just, it's just a learning. It's like, this is how we learn. This is, this is how we grow. And I'm sure you've heard the expression that company cultures all start from the top, right? There's lots of books written by mega, you know, CEOs who've talked about the culture that they've built. And so the CEO of Ariat, who's the, one of the founders uh, and still runs the company is just a very incredible human and she runs the company her way. And so when you're in a safe environment where you're not afraid of somebody judging you because you say something stupid in a meeting or because you make a mistake or something, you know, your people's creative juices come out and, and you do your best work. I'm uh, I love that you said this because I think the roles where I've gotten to grow the most or felt like I had the, the, I mean, honestly, the most fun was when I felt like my boss trusted my decisions and gave me free reign to be creative and make mistakes. And I think everyone operates on different working styles on where some people like when their boss says, okay, this is exactly how I want it done. You're going to do this, this, this. And and they, they want the guidelines. And I think maybe if you're, you're new in your career, you may want a little bit more of that, but I do think that there's something really special. Like what you said, when you work in an environment where you mistakes are just totally normal. I always joke with me and my team of like, we're just always changing stuff. Like there's never even a mistake because it doesn't work out. We can just change it again. And, and that's so much fun. And that's where so much of the creativity comes from. And I think that if you, well, one thing I want to say on that is that if you are younger and you're someone that kind of enjoys more 
I don't know if I want to say like strict management style, that's okay, but be open to the opportunities where you do have the boss that's like, okay, do what you want, try what you want, make mistakes, because I think that is a very different type of learning opportunity. And like you said, one where you really get to step into yourself. And for you, it was where a place where you felt like you got to do your best work, which is beautiful and amazing. Well, what's interesting about what you just said, it really got me thinking about my management style and people who have been unhappy working for me. And the people who need to those really, really strict marching orders that you talked about and those people, well, they didn't really like working for me because that's not my management style, but also those kind of people don't necessarily make the best marketers. So there absolutely needs to be a process that everybody understands and someone who worked for me said to me once that the the process enabled her to be creative, right? So mm-hmm. when she knew what the process was, then she could create. And, and, and I, and I love that because, because if, you know, you, you, you need some guidelines and you need some guardrails within to work, but in marketing, I think you really need to be able to think outside of those as well. And so that's something for people to really think about when they choose the different roles. So like if you're in a social media role and your job is to look at the data and the analytics, that's great. You do that, you know, but if you want to be in a role where you are working with creative and you're making content, you know, cause that's really what we're talking about are these, the roles where there's content and messaging and writing involved. I think it takes a, a certain skill set to go yeah. in and out of the rules <laughs> or the process. And, I do, and there, you're, you're right. There is a balance of having like some structure, right. Of, okay. The, the, I, and I processes processes, I believe are super, super important and valuable and a whole separate conversation on that. But, but I do think that, and, and I know people on both sides of the spectrum of some that, you know, and that's fine. It's also good to know which, where you lie. So you can find a manager that's going to give you that because like you said, you had people on your team that weren't very happy because they didn't like your management style. So I think it's important to recognize like which management style that you prefer. But I also, if you are someone that falls into that, I really like strict guidelines. I encourage you to lean into your, out of your comfort zone to be okay in the gray and be a little bit okay when there's some uncertainty because I think that there is more opportunity to create or be creative in those spaces. I totally agree with you. Okay, Marcy. Well, we went through your entire career journey and I am sure there's a lot of stuff we didn't get to fully dive into, but we went through so much. I can't even think about how many different companies you must have named in this entire journey of of hearing your story. Can you share with us your five biggest takeaways that you got from your very rich and, and full career that you think that young women should know? Yeah. And I do think that there are some really important things that we don't think about. So here's my list. Now, if you ask me tomorrow, I can probably give you another list, but these are the things when I either hired people or were working with people came very, were very true for me. Okay. Can I, can I say that again, Natalie? Yes. yes. Okay. Sorry. Can you ask me just the question again and let me just answer again? Cause I, I don't like what I just said. <laughs> no worries. 
Okay, Marcy. So we went through your entire career journey and we talked about all the different companies you've worked at and you've had a very full and rich career history. And I'm very curious to hear what are the top five things that you think that women now who are starting their careers should know so they can hopefully maybe avoid some of the mistakes you made or just potentially have a journey or career like yours. Yeah. And I have thought a lot about this for myself and, and just to share with others. So just at the very, very, very top of that question at a high level, obviously having strategic thinking skills and critical thinking skills is, is an absolute must have for anybody in, in marketing. But if I really have to hone it down to five things that I really want to leave people with. The first thing is, are you sitting down? Stop thinking that other people are smarter than you or more qualified than you to do a job. I think we're all guilty of that one. (laughs) What'd you say? I said, I think we're all guilty of that one. I think especially a lot of the women I work with in our accelerator feel like other people are more qualified and they're almost afraid to apply to the jobs or get nervous for the interviews because I, I mean, so many of us struggle with that imposter syndrome. Yeah. And we need to really throw away the word imposter syndrome because it's, it's a waste of energy. So the, I am also just going to say this again, sorry for you to have to edit Natalie, but If at the very top of my list of five things I want people to take away, the first one is stop thinking that other people are smarter than you or more qualified than you. It's very, very easy for any human to think this in any job that you have and at any level that you have. And I've talked to people who run big, 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 big companies and make tons of money. And they still think that there could be someone in the room or that there is someone in the room or on the board or the VC group that is smarter or more qualified than them. It's just not true. It's just not true. So the second that you think that thought, tell yourself, bye-bye thought, that's not true. I did blah, 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 blah. I can do X, Y, Z. I'm smart. Look in the mirror every day and say, I'm smart. So that's the first thing. The second thing is address your fears, figure out what you're afraid of, write them down, and then let them go. If you think about it in so many situations, really, what is the worst thing that can happen? Well, if you're looking for a job and you have a bad interview, I guess the worst thing that can happen is that you don't get the job. You didn't die. You didn't hurt yourself. You just didn't get the job. Okay. If you didn't get the job, that job was not meant for you. There's something about that job and that situation that you don't know about that would not have worked or would not have made you happy, but you just don't know it. Okay. Then once you're in the job, we all have fears. Oh, I'm making a presentation. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. What is the worst thing that can happen? It's never as bad as what we make it out to be, right? You want a raise? You're afraid to ask for a raise? What's the worst thing that can happen? Your boss says no. Okay. Then you get to make other choices, 
then you get to make other decisions. Is it time to look for another job? Am I okay with this? They said I could come back in three months or I need to do X, Y, Z in order to get the raise. Okay, you have the information you need in order to make your next decision. So number two, address your fears. Number three is how you say something is just as important as what you say. How you say something is just as important as what you say. I took a class in college and it was about how females speak. And it was, it was career changing for me because I learned about speech and I learned about how we are trained to talk. So for example, a very typical thing that women do is we, in a sentence, when we're saying a sentence and we get to the last few words, we raise our voice. We raise our voice. We don't take our voice down. Men take their voice down and then they sound like they have more gravitas than we do. So I wish I knew this early on in my career. I would have practiced a lot more. I would have practiced when I was asking a question in a meeting to make sure that I didn't use filler words and that my voice didn't go up and down and that I felt more confident or at least faked feeling confident when I was asking the question about 10 years ago, I had a boss that said to me, Marcy, I really want, I really want you to have more gravitas. And I really, I was thinking, what does she mean? Like what gravitas? Like, am I supposed to start bossing people around? Am I supposed to be mean? But I think what she really meant was that she just wanted to hear me speak with more confidence. She liked what I was saying. She just wanted me to say it differently. So that's number three. Number four is know the details, but think big picture and think high level. I think, especially at the beginning of our careers, it's really easy to think if I know every detail, I know every point, I know everything that's going on and I can show my boss that I know all these different things that are happening in all these different areas and, 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 and I'm smart. And I know this, that that's, what's going to get me promoted because I know all these different things that's happening. Knowing the details is not going to get you promoted. What is going to get you promoted is being able to think big picture. Now to think big picture, you do have to know the details, but you need to be able to talk and demonstrate that you understand the big picture and that you're a big thinker. Number five is think that you're smart enough to ask questions. Think that you're smart enough to ask questions. I was talking to someone yesterday who is a very, very, very experienced physician. And he was saying to me that throughout his career, at any point in his career, that sometimes he was afraid to ask his chief a question or in med school, he was afraid to ask questions. And I, I think asking questions shows that you're, you're smart. Not that you're not smart, but that your brain is actually working. So that's something that I really hope your audience can think about and, you know, take away as, as something that's important for their career. Now I have a bonus one. Okay. I'm a cheater and I'm a rule breaker. So you said five, but the sixth one is, um, energy matters. And what I mean by that is how, how you talk, how you walk into a room, how you get on a zoom call, 
how you walk down a hallway in the office, even when you're going to the bathroom and you think that nobody can see you, how you hold your body in a meeting, how you hold your head on a, on a zoom or how you hold yourself is very, very important. People can pick up on things by looking at you and they make a decision in a nanosecond, what they think about you. And it's very hard to get people to change their mind about you once they have an opinion. So energy matters. Your energy matters. Even if you're faking it, think about the energy that you are bringing into a room, onto a call, into your life. And when you walk down the hall, people used to say at me at work, say to me at work when I was rushing to the bathroom, like, are you okay? Is something wrong? And I'm like, no, I'm just thinking, right? But I looked like I was upset. That's important. I- I love all of these. I feel like we could even do just like a whole nother episode just going into each of these because there's so much to say. Um, I'm going to repeat them one more time. And just, I, I want to add a couple notes to a couple things you said, but stop assuming people are smarter or more qualified for you. The freedom you will feel after this is incredible. It took me a while to get with, with this one, but it is it is such a great feeling when you, yeah, when you realize that that's just really not the case. And a lot of that is, us thinking way more about other overthinking things that just do not need to be. Yeah. We do not deserve our energy. Write down your fears and let go of them. Have you heard of fear setting before? Tim Ferriss does a really incredible exercise around this that I did when I started my business was I wrote down all the things I was the most afraid of. And I wrote down the worst case scenario that would happen if they came true. And it was just such an incredible exercise. And it's the same thing. Wait, I'm afraid to ask for a raise. Okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? My boss says no. And maybe maybe you're 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 having a rational fear that you're going to get fired because you asked for a raise, right? Okay, well let's say you do get fired. Okay, like then what are you going to do? Okay, well, and it's just like thinking through the worst case scenarios and once you actually think through them, you realize that they're really not that scary. So I love that one. I feel like people always do goal setting, but they don't do fear setting. Yeah. How how you say something just as important as the way you say it. I love that. I think that one also ties into the energy matters. I think those were were closely related, which I love both of those. Knowing the de- knowing the details won't get you promoted. What you what will get you promoted is thinking big picture. So such a good piece of knowledge to have when you're even when if you're an employee and you are a marketing coordinator, it still matters that you need to think big picture and that you don't just do what's asked of you, but you can think bigger and do what's do what's not asked of you, right? You can exceed expectations. You're not just doing your job. You're doing more than your job because you are able to think big. And that is what will help you get promoted and move into leadership, which. And, and in a marketing coordinator role, the way that you would do that, because you're, you know, people listening who are marketing coordinators might think, well, how do I do that? I'm not, you know, I'm a marketing coordinator. You do that by asking a question, Mm. right? Because if you ask the question, your boss goes, wow, she's really thinking big picture. What a great question. Yes. Forever tying to the last one that you're, think that you're smart enough to ask questions. I honestly can tell if someone is smart, like based on the question that they asked is, that is an indication of your intelligence, I believe. And I think that people, I was just actually last time I went to this pitch practice. It was where a bunch of entrepreneurs in Austin go and then they pitch their businesses. And I was sitting in the audience and they would ask a question after every pitch. It's like, did you guys understand? 
And someone will go up and pitch like a Bitcoin, crypto, super complicated idea. And I'm looking at the audience and everyone's raising their hands that they understand. I'm like, there's no way that all of you understand what this guy's doing with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but no one wants to be dumb enough or think that they're dumb and not raise their hand, right? But in reality, the, the person that's actually bold enough to say, like, I, I actually don't know what that is. And I, and I actually want to hear more and ask questions. That is the person that is that, ha- that holds more intelligence than the one that is pretending that they know everything. I think a lot of us think that in order to appear smart, we need to ask less questions when in reality, it's the exact opposite. It is. And I can't tell you how many times I was that person in the room that asked the question that nobody wanted to ask. And I had someone way more senior to me lean over and go, I didn't understand that either. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't want to admit it. Okay. Love all five or six of those. Awesome's energy matters. Those are incredible. And I, and I hope that if you're listening, you're writing those down and, and figuring out how you can incorporate those or start working on those to help you in your life and career. Now, Marcy, I want to, we haven't even gotten to the biggest part, which is what you're currently doing now. And that is that you wrote a book. So, and amongst other things. So can you tell me um, a little bit about why you decided to write a book and be a coach and help women and change this paradigm of female leadership. Yeah. It's funny again, how life just offers you things and you, you don't know what's coming. And I'm going to be really honest. I did not have an outline for this book. I just had an idea. And for about 10 years, I was walking around with this title in my head I think it came to me, I was at a conference years ago in Las Vegas and I just, I just got this idea and I was like, I just have to write a book called my boss is a bitch. And we've got to just change this. We've just got to change this because we can't keep thinking that female bosses that you're are, are, are bitches. And why are people thinking this? What are we doing? What's happening? My team thinks I'm a bitch or, you know, what? And, and so the, you know, on the, the back cover of my book, I'm like, if you're one of the countless people who have said or heard my boss is a bitch, this book is for you. So basically the reason I wrote this book is because women continue to make huge strides, right? It's breaking the glass ceiling. We're doing more and more wonderful things, but this, this thing that happens with women at work that I call women versus women it, it continues and I've, it's happened to me. It's happened to my friends. It's, it's, it happens at all levels where women aren't nice to each other and they aren't supportive of one another. They think they, they might pretend that they're being supportive and they might want it to appear that way on the outside, but that's not really what's happening. And everyone's afraid to talk about it. So, you know, in what I call the old days, you know, there was this thing about like male bosses was your male boss doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I've had incredible male bosses. I've also had incredible female bosses. I really need to say that for the record, I wouldn't be here without many of the women that that I worked for. But there's this dynamic that happens with women. And as you go up the, the, the chain, especially in corporations, you feel it more and more. And there's just, it's a, it's a, it's a competition and it's a sabotaging that goes on. And it's a dynamic. And I want to start a conversation. I want young women today going into whether they're corporate roles or non-corporate roles, really go in trusting their gut, being their authentic selves, learning how to have what I call healthy conflict, 
have, you know, have those heart, knowing how to have those hard conversations with people, that's okay. And making the work better as a result, letting go of our fears. And then really, really most importantly is we all have an innate superpower. We all have superpowers that we were born with and things happen to us along the way where we don't fully either know what our superpower is, or we don't leverage it, or we have 80% of it and not the 20% that's really going to pivot our lives in a different direction. So that's why I wrote this book to, to just talk about all these things. And, and I, and I wrote it for her, I always say for my girls, but for, for everyone's, everyone's girls, um, even the girls that are 80 years old, um, because we aren't having these conversations in public. We're having them in private. So I want to start the conversation. I, what you said there about how, you know, women supporting women, right? That's the narrative that we tell ourselves within our community. But I think you made a a really good point there is that sometimes that's not always the case that you have had incredible female leaders and you, and you know, throughout your work history, but there's not all of the stories and interactions are always as positive or as supporting and empowering as you would hope that they would be. Can you walk me through, I think there's four chapters in your book. Is that correct? If you can walk me through each one um, and just kind of like what exactly you kind of go through and my boss is a bitch. Yeah. So there's four sections of the book um, purposely. So the first section, part one are the bad apples. And these are five stories of women who uh, weren't such great leaders, but I absolutely learned from in every section of the book, I have lessons learned and we can learn from every situation that we're in, right? Good and bad. And so part one are the bad apples. And I also just want to be really clear to people that the intent of this book is not to take anyone down or to, you know, say, you know, this person is, you know, horrible. That's not what it's about. The stories are kind of funny. I take responsibility for my role and, you know, whatever happened. And it's just, you know, just to really tell stories and get people again, thinking about their behavior. So it's not mean spirited, or at least my intention is that it's not mean spirited. Part two are the good eggs. And those are four stories of just incredible women that I worked for that I learned so much from with their leadership style, their brain power, just really badass. And they really need to be recognized. And they had just a huge impact on my learning and and my career. But then section three is the five key leadership qualities. They don't teach you in business school. And what these are, are really my leadership principles. And these are the things that over my career, I just saw they came up over and over and over again. And they, they just... Are, are things that I want people to talk about. So those leadership principles are around being your authentic self. What does that really mean? Practicing calm. They don't teach you that. It's so, so important. Confidence, being confident. We talk about it all the time, but like, how do we really become confident? What does that really look like? And then the fourth one is lead with ferocious love. I think that we, especially as women are afraid to, lead in certain ways because we don't want to be mommy and we don't want to be seen as, 
you know, too soft. And that just creates a whole lot of conflict in us. And so how as a woman, do you lead with ferocious love and still be a strong leader? And then number five is embrace healthy conflict. So healthy conflict, especially in marketing is so important. And what that means is, you know, people who get together and you might not have the same idea about something, but you're able to talk about it and disagree. And then, aha, you come together and you have this big aha moment and the path is cleared and everyone's got their marching orders and wow, that was really hard, but look, everything is so clear for us right now. Men, and I'm making a generalization, don't have issues with this. They, they, they sure have an argument, have a discussion. You can argue, argue over an athlete as the outcome of a football game, but you know, we're taught not to do that right? That doesn't make us sweet and nice and likable. And I love a good debate around strategy or creative or whatever that might be, um, because the work is always stronger in the end. So that's part three. And then part four is it's a section called it's your toolkit. It's the ultimate toolkit for female leaders. There's lots and lots in there. It could be a standalone section for people. So if you don't want to read the rest of the book, if you do nothing but read part four and work the toolkit, I think you will come out feeling more confident and with some new leadership skills that you might not have had going into it. And that's the section where I do a lot of exercises around how you listen to your gut, how you figure out what your superpower is, um, you know, how, how do you be your authentic self? What does that look like? And lots of other good stuff. My question for you is that I think, so you're reading me this stuff and I'm like, and it sounds incredible. I think a lot of young career women don't necessarily maybe think that they need to focus on leadership. They may not think that, oh, I need to be spending some time working on my leadership skills, right? It's probably, you know, based on the woman I talked to, they're just really focused on doing good at their job and they're, they're focused on getting promoted and they're focused or getting hired or getting the next job. So why does it matter, especially as a woman, for you to focus on these skills that you're talking about in your book? So, you know, that is a really interesting question because we lump all of these conversations and ideas into what we are calling the leadership category. But this is really, it's really about learning how to just be be more self-aware and what self-awareness and your, your path to joy and happiness. Um, we, you know, we, we call that leadership. So you don't have to want to manage people to get a lot out of this book. You don't, you can be an individual contributor for the rest of your life. You don't have to work in a corporate environment. You can be an entrepreneur. You can be a teacher. You can be anything. These are just principles, I think, for really figuring out what we want, what we're good at, what are our deal breakers, and then how to get that. So we call that leadership, but it's really a lot more than that. I'm glad you broke that down because I think especially when I was starting out, I never really thought that that was a skill I needed to build until maybe you get your first management role and you're like, okay, wait, you know, someone's working underneath me and, and maybe I need to look 
<laughs> into this a bit more. But I think at least hearing the different things that you talked through and kind of like the outline of what you go through is this pretty much skills that help you navigate your own career. And like you said, just being self-aware. The one piece I also want love to hear a little bit more about is this positive conflict management or how to navigate conflict in a positive way. Even in my own personal life, I've found working with fighting with women is so hard <laughs> because I mean, just the different, I mean, I, I have a lot of brothers and, you know, we can fight and get over it and move on. And then when I fight with my, you know, my girlfriends or there's drama, it is like drama, right? I mean, even that word that is just more prevalent within females. So I would love if you could just talk more about that piece. So that's could be a book in itself, <laughs> right? <laughs> And the, oh, when you and I first met, we both learned that one of our favorite books is The Likeability Trap, Yes, right? Incredible book, yes. Right, and so the short answer to what you just said is that I think everyone should read The Likeability Trap, the trap as well as my book, because we want to be liked. And if you want to be liked, and if that is your guiding light being liked, you aren't going to be able to have hard conversations with anybody. Mm. It's just not, you can't, if that's what you care about most is being liked, it, it won't happen. So I totally relate to what you just said around the differences, right. In how males and females resolve conflict. And this is also hence why I wrote the book and I named it. My boss is a bitch is because that's what we do. We, we, we call each other. She's such a bitch. Right. And, and, and why is it so hard and why is this happening? And, you know, you've got the mean girls movie and we've got the mean, you know, mean girls, mean girls, mean girls. It's complicated. Okay. There is not one answer to that. It's very complicated. It's some of it. And I asked this in some of my exercises in the book is, you know, how much, are, how much, are we born with? How much do we learn along the way? And then, you know, how much are we learning from how other women above us are doing it? And so we're very influenced by the women that we work for. So if you work for a woman who's really, really good at resolving conflict, you're going to get better at resolving conflict at work and with your friends. I think that, you know, for me going through my coaching program, it was really instrumental in, in learning how, learning new ways to resolve con conflict in my personal life. And then also how I can coach people, you know, with conflict, it's really, really hard. I mean, I think that the first thing that I believe is say what you think, just say it. I'm concerned about this for X, Y, Z, and just say it and let the room be quiet for a minute and just take it in. You know, I, I really believe in like a no gossip, no gossip, no tattletailing, no tit for tat. That's rule number one. And you can run your personal relationships the same way. You know, if a girlfriend comes to you and they're gossiping about someone else, you can, you know, you can say without being Pollyanna, okay, I hear what you're saying. You know, have you thought of just having a conversation with her? I mean, there's different ways to cut it off and to keep it, you know, business. But it's a, you know, it's a long, long conversation. <laughs> it's, you know, chapter, chapter 14 in my book, <laughs> leadership principle number five, embracing healthy conflict. 
And I, I write as the, just a few sentences, conflict shows up in different ways in the corporate environment. It can be subtle and indirect and unspoken as leaders. We have the opportunity and the responsibility to notice when there is conflict in a meeting or among, among people and address it in a constructive way. Don't let conflict simmer because eventually it boils over. Because I think that as women, we're also afraid to address it. I think that your one piece there, you said, say what you think is probably just that tiny piece of advice. I think and people t took it, especially with women, because I feel like I get frustrated sometimes in my own female friendships where I feel like I hear something through someone else about through someone else that someone wasn't happy about something that I did that I would be more than happy to apologize for and move on. But I, you know, don't get to receive that feedback directly. And I, I'm thinking of examples, like if you're at, you know, you're working on a team when you're working on a design, for example, and you have a different opinion. Oh, I like both of them. Oh, which one do you like? Oh, they're both really great. Like, and you just kind of on this back and forth where no one's really saying which one that they like because they don't want to insult the other person. Same thing. I mean, I can think of just so many examples like this of and even making plans with friends where it becomes, or even I'm guilty of doing this where I don't even want to say the reality of like, actually, like, I want to go home right now. I don't want to stay here. I just want to leave or I want to go home. And, and there's this need that even if I'm the type of person that I would probably say, oh, I don't really care about being liked, but I do, right? Even, you know, even if I don't want to admit to myself, I do. And I think that it comes out in so many different ways where you're not being honest. And that goes back to that authenticity piece. And then you're not being authentic to yourself. And that creates just a lot of cognitive dissonance and your own internal issues. Yeah. And I would love to talk you more about this. I think it's something that we struggle with a lot as, as women and the most effective female leaders that I've worked for that are not afraid of healthy conflict have been extremely successful. Mm -hmm. And we, we can dive so much into this. And I love that you keep saying healthy conflict because I think that's equally as important to the conversation. So I'm just saying that all conflict is great. There's a healthy, disagreeing is not a bad thing. Healthy conflict is okay. One thing I might suggest when you're in a situation, for example, when you're looking at a couple pieces of creative and first of all, you might not have a strong preference, but then if you do and you're afraid to say it, what you can always do a little pro tip here is say the positive of each campaign. Like, well, this campaign does X, Y, Z and the other one does X, Y, Z. So we might want to think about, and then you propose a question for people to think about, you know, if we really want to target younger women, you know, campaign A might work a little harder, but if we want to target someone who is a mom, campaign B might work a little harder, right? So you, you kind of turn it on the people in the room for them to think about what they are going for. Yeah. And you, I love and that. you let the group decide. I love that. Pose it as a question. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Okay, Marcy. Well, this has been just such a fun conversation and I have learned so much speaking with you and just hearing about your career journey and your book. I know you've already given us your, you know, the, the, the five biggest things you think that women should take away from your career journey, but is there any last piece of advice or any last, you know, maybe, um, tip from your book that you want to leave us with before I let you go? 
Well, thank you for that last question. And it's just been a pleasure talking to you, Natalie. And I'm so excited about what you're doing for young women. And it's just your, the journey that you're on is, is incredible. And I love seeing all these women that you're helping that are getting jobs. The one thing that I would really just, again, want to leave people with is let go of your fears, move forward, persevere. Don't be afraid. Ask questions. Don't doubt yourself. Go for it. I love it. Amazing. Well, uh, you can find Marcy's book on Amazon. My boss is a bitch. When we do post this episode, we'll definitely link out to your book as well. Thank you again for having, for coming on the Sky Society podcast, Marcy. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Natalie. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join our private LinkedIn group for women in marketing. It's called Sky Society Women in Marketing, and you are welcome to join us on LinkedIn. And you can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok at skysociety.co for more information on all things marketing and career. And I'll see you in the next episode.